Good morning. What a beautiful combination of songs that we had this morning, which really goes along with the passage we're going to look at in the scriptures this morning, Revelation chapter 5. You can start turning there if you'd like to. And also, the season of the year we're in. Right? I, I got my Christmas tie out today. I only wear it this time of year. And I was trying to decide, you know, culture has gotten more casual since COVID, if it wasn't trending in that direction already. And so I said, okay, some people even speaking nowadays here at Boulevard are not wearing ties. And, and uh, do I really want to start a tradition of going back the other way? Because I think that we've all appreciated the fact that uh, we feel a little bit more like we can really come as we are to be in the presence of God. And we want to not equate dressing appropriate and morally with formal, right? Because uh, I don't know that Jesus had a second coat he put on on when he went to the tabernacle. He came as he was, and he invites us to come. And But at the same time, I wanted to remind myself, it is the Christmas season. We celebrate this time of the year, Christ's first coming into the world. And what we're going to look at today is a glimpse of him in the future to be reminded of who he is and the fact that there is going to be a second coming of Christ to this world. And he's not going to come the same way. But praise God, he came the first time the way that he did, with humility, to become one of us, that he might be qualified to take our place on the cross so long ago. And, and what a, a lot we have to rejoice over uh, as we look at both comings. And, and uh, anyway... I love the blend. We sang, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And yet, here we saw, is anyone worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, and uh, to rule, to reign? And he is. Praise God. He's the same, the same Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever. All right, well... Um, we're making our way to Revelation chapter 5. I'll just say a few things. Um, for those who have not been with us, I know we have a number visiting today. We are taking a trip through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, always got to be careful how we say that, right? Sometimes we say revelations, but there's no S on the book. It's one revelation about one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, and we kind of have an outline of the progression of how the book unfolds, right? And in chapter 1, Jesus himself is speaking. And he tells John, the, the human author who penned the words in Revelation 1.19, he said, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And as you read the book, and, and there's a promise of blessing to those who will read and heed the words that are in this book. And so if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go back and read it for yourself. Uh, but in chapter 1, we see the Lord Jesus revealing himself to John. And he told him, write the things which you have seen, which included that vision in chapter 1. And then he said, write the things which are. And in chapters 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus spoke messages to seven churches in existence at that time in, in, in the area of the world called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, um, messages that he had for these seven churches, and we looked at those. And that's during the time that we still live in, the time when God is working in this world through his church, his called-out people from the masses of the world to belong to him. And He is. we saw Jesus Christ walking amongst those lampstands picturing the churches spread out all around the world and he was working amongst them and and that's still the time in which we are but now in chapter four there was a change he said to write he told john write the things which will take place after this and so in sort of a transition chapters four and five leave the scene of earth and transport us by what we read here in chapters 4 and 5, with John, who literally was swept up in the Spirit to see this vision of the heavenlies. And it's what happens there in chapters 4 and 5 that really lay the stage for the whole rest of the book. 
Because what, what John begins to see that what is happening there in the heavenlies, what he sees in chapters four and five, and in chapter five, we see the scene continuing from what we saw last week in chapter four. The Lord Jesus takes a scroll. And as he begins to open that scroll in heaven, things begin happening on earth. And we, we're going to follow those things from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. And so this is, this is a pivotal transitional section transitioning the former sections of the book to the end. And uh, it's, it's truly an amazing scene. And because chapters 4 and 5 are a continuing of the same scenario, the same scene, I'm going to go back and read chapter 4 and read chapter 5 so that we have the whole thing. Because really, to cut in at chapter 5 misses the, the, the grandeur of, of the whole story. Um, of course, chapter 5 alone would be all, tremendous. But, but to set the stage, I think, would be worth doing. So that's what I'm actually going to do is go back to chapter 4 and read it because it is one continued uh, uh, scene. Um, and then we'll come back and, and take a look in more detail, shall we? So Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through chapters 4 and 5. And it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, 
the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. May God bless the reading of His Word. Father, we can only imagine what it would be like to be in that throne. Lord, we've enjoyed singing this morning the songs that we've sung, celebrating our Lord's first coming into this world, looking forward to this very scene in the future where we celebrate the one and the only one who truly is worthy of the honor and glory and blessing poured out upon him already in the heavens and and by us who will join them someday and to reign just as it was promised that he would. But Lord, oh, how we do look forward to that day. Those of us who are ready for it. I do pray, Lord, that you would stir up within us the awe and wonder that you deserve, that would inspire us while we continue in this scene, awaiting the one we just read about, to give you your rightful place in our lives today. To be so taken up with that worthy Lamb of God that It truly changes the way we live here. And that, Lord, that somehow in the midst of all this, that you would draw others to yourself. Perhaps there's some here today who don't know whether they will be amongst that number, welcomed and celebrating our Savior in his presence. Lord, we pray that you would enlighten their hearts and minds to who he is and what he's done for them, and that they, too, would bow their own knee, so to speak, to yield themselves to Him even now, to call upon Him as their own personal Lord and Savior that they might truly be redeemed by His blood, washed clean and fit to be in His presence. And Lord, I just pray that somehow You would help us to get a glimpse of the of Your majesty through this passage today. I'm sure I won't do it justice, but I just call upon Your Holy Spirit to give Your help to magnify Jesus Christ himself, who alone is worthy. If it's in his name we pray. Amen. Sometimes I think maybe it'd be better just to say closing prayer and go home. (laughs) I don't know how you improve on such a scene. But if you're like me, you probably have some questions about some of the stuff that's in it. Maybe we can clarify some of those and just reflect upon what has been revealed to us. I was thinking about this scene uh, and how to try to enter into what it must be like there in heaven. It's such a different place, right? You know, we sang this morning, um, I skipped my other introduction here. Um, Do you feel the world is broken? I don't think there's any one of us who has to be convinced that the world we live in is broken. Do you feel the shadows deepening? We do, right? But do you know that all that darkness won't stop the light from getting through? And do you wish that you could see it all made new? That's what we're talking about here. And, and we sang with the kids, uh, I think it was on Friday, 
Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom and power and love. Our God is an awesome God. That was what I was thinking about as I was reading this passage coming out of chapter 4. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to see and remember that he really is still reigning on the throne with all the brokenness around us. But when we look into the scriptures, we're reminded that he is still reigning. But he has allowed things to continue so that what we read about on this page can be experienced by as many as possible. And praise God, one was found worthy. He can do all that. And so we're going to be taking a look at him again this morning. Now, if you notice the key words in the passage that we were reading this morning in chapters 4 and 5, there is... um, All right. In chapter 4, we saw the throne mentioned, I think it was 14 times. 12 describing the throne that the Lord himself is seated on. And 2, the thrones of those 24 elders gathered around it. But you get the sense, and you can see it in the narrative, that the key concept there is about the throne. Who's on the throne? The things that are happening in front of it? What proceeds from the throne? And we studied that last week in our in our small groups. And, and, and we see that that everyone there in that moment is recognizing the majesty and the glory of him who sits on the throne. And he's seated there. And there's no competition for him. And, the, and all those present fall down to worship him, declaring his greatness. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, you are worthy to receive the glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. The different songs between chapter 4 and chapter 5 as he is worshipped is that in chapter 4 what we see there is that God is worthy because he is creator. He made us. We belong to him. And rightfully he deserves and is worthy of our devotion to him. Not only ours, but all those who are there in the heavenlies in chapter 4. All those created angels and the four living creatures and all those there rightfully worship him. But what we're going to see in chapter 5 is an an addition to what we saw in chapter 4. Because the word throne is still a key word. Five times it's mentioned in this chapter as well. So that would make a total of 19 times. Well... 17, if we just count the throne. But now we see the addition of some new words. Number one, a scroll, mentioned eight times. Worthy, four times. And the lamb, three times. Now, he's referred to more than this, but specifically the word lamb is mentioned those three times. And so what we're going to see is a focus that begins to add this seven-sealed scroll to what we see before the throne. But also, and I was deciding, what do I title this little message today? Should I call it the seven-sealed scroll? But it's not really about the scroll. It's about the one worthy lamb. There was one found worthy, and it was the lamb. And I thought, you know, it's interesting that we have these two parallels. The seven-sealed scroll, the one worthy lamb. There's a number, seven seals, one lamb. There's a focus of those seven things, the scroll and the lamb, and It's described for us. The scroll was sealed and the lamb is worthy. So whichever one we call it, it's all the same passage, the same scene. And that's where we're going to head this morning. So I think I've gone through what I wanted to for this song. Um, But I wanted to just highlight to you, if you are like me and you read this, you have to try to picture the scroll. But then you also have to wonder, what is this scroll? Because so much is centered around it. And so much is going to happen as the seals are broken going into the next chapters. And this is why I said to myself, okay, do I really want to try to make the decision when so many other great Bible teachers have different suggestions as to what this scroll is? Many much greater than myself. And so, but I said, you know what? We're all wondering. Let's consider the scroll. So even just trying to picture it, right? It says in verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So God Almighty is on the throne, and we pictured all the glory and majesty and all of the worship going on before him. And John is beholding this, and then he looks and he sees, when he starts to look at this one on the throne, that his hand, his palm, 
is open holding a scroll. And it's described as written on the inside and the back, sealed with seven seals. And so, okay, let me just try to find a picture so I can put it on the screen. Well, then you have all these different ideas of what it really looks like. And I suppose we're not going to know exactly for sure. But then as we go, we have questions. Well, is there significance to the fact that it's written inside and out? Is there significance to the fact that it's sealed in the first place? Is there significance to the fact that there's seven seals? And how are they placed on the scroll? Yes. Um, But it's a very interesting thing to consider. And so before we get into the wonder and worthiness of the one who will receive this scroll it's important that we actually take a few minutes to consider the scroll itself. What is it, right? And even what it looks like. Now, um, I said that before I just go look at Bible commentators, um, I wondered, is there anything outside of the Bible that might give us a clue as to what this might have been? So we're not just trying to force something onto the text, right? Um, We get accused of that sometimes. Well, you're biased, and so you're, you're just trying to make it what you want it to be. Well, that, that's valid and worth considering. Well, there was actually uh, some writing from a source, and I forgot to write it down in my notes, but I, I copied it on my page on my computer. And it talked about how the fact that Roman wills were sealed with seven seals. And what they would do when they made a will is they would call in the witnesses, and there were often, and I think, prescribed seven of them, And as they witnessed what was in the will, they each put their individual seal on the scroll to validate that it was truly uh, uh, the original, the contents were true according to the, the, the one making the will and testament were, and so those seals were put there. And so in the event, in the time when the will was to be opened, they knew that it had not been tampered with and that the contents were still as they were originally supposed to be. Um, and so uh, I looked and I thought, okay, you know that. So here I see a scroll that has seven seals on it so that it's been sealed up and rolled. And then um, it's waiting to be opened by its rightful person. And those witnesses could be called back in to validate, yes, that's my seal. I was there when it was sealed. I know that this is... Uh, uh, an authoritative, validated copy of the will of this person. But then there was also some people said, well, you know, uh, in those days, they would also seal the scroll differently, is that sometimes they would put the seals along the edge of the pages so that as you snapped the first seal, you could go so far into reading it, but then you'd have to snap the second seal to unroll it a little bit further and read some more, and then you'd snap the next one, and it would go uh, chronologically from beginning to end through the the seals so that uh, uh, by the time you unrolled the whole thing, you had one been through all the seals, but it was also once again protected from anyone reading or tampering with it before you read it. Either way, uh, it seems that uh, a one understanding of this scroll is that it is uh, the will and testament of the one who has written it. In this case, it would be God himself. But then there's another possibility for what this document could be. And uh, we see it pictured for us in the scriptures uh, in Jeremiah, for example. Uh, And I I thought, let's just take a moment to try to grasp, um, and I'm not doing a very good job at finding Jeremiah while I try to talk, so let me find it. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to do a little reading here in Jeremiah 32 where a scene takes place where a scroll is sealed and put away for future use and what its purpose was, right? And, and for those who are familiar, I'll tell you, it, it, it's, it's the kinsman redeemer uh, 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 preparing to redeem his kinsman's land. And um, there was a provision made in the law in Leviticus 25, as well uh, as Deuteronomy 25, where as the people of Israel came into the promised land, the Lord understood what was going to happen to them. And so he said, you know, the time may come when uh, you fall upon financial hard times. 
and you have a debt or a need that you cannot supply, and so uh, uh, you may end up selling yourself into slavery or servitude to someone else for a time. And so when you get to that point and you sell yourself to be a slave, God was providing for a way for you to be released from that slavery. And so he said, a near kinsman, someone related to you, has the right and ability to come pay the debt that you owe to release you from slavery. And three things needed to be true of this redeemer who was a near kinsman, or sometimes called the kinsman redeemer. And to redeem something means to pay the price to buy it back, right? So they had to, number one, be a relative. They had to be related to you, a near kinsman, part of your kin, your family. They also had to be willing to pay the price, right? They also needed to be able to pay the price. Not enough to be related. You may look at that relative of yours and say, "Mm, no, I'm going to leave you where you are. Not willing. There are some who may be willing but not related. There are some who may be related and willing but not able. And so the kinsman redeemer, who was to carry out the, the prescribed means of redeeming this relative, had to be related, willing, and able to pay the price. Well, you know, there was also other things that could be redeemed. A, a, a woman who was married and died, and the husband died, she's now a widow. And the, the women in that day could not own property. And, and so the estate, the inheritance, it was kind of in limbo. And oftentimes, uh, uh, a relative, uh, uh, perhaps a brother of the uh, deceased man, would marry this widow as an additional wife to kind of preserve the family uh, uh, inheritance. Um, Or if there was no one that close, the, the next of kin, the next of kin were contacted to find someone who was related, willing, or able to, uh, uh, to redeem this widow and her inheritance. And then land itself could be redeemed. And that's what we find here an example of in Jeremiah 32. And the, concept, the context, the, the situation where we find this story is very much like what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 5. Because at this time, the, the nation of Israel, or I should say the southern kingdom of Judah, was in a very desperate situation. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had raided the nation and carted off a whole lot of people. And that's when Daniel and his three friends were taken at the very beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But it tells us here in Jeremiah 32 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. So we're 18 years into Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And all along, God has been warning the people through prophets like Jeremiah, listen, if you don't repent and get right with me, this is going to continue, and all of you are going to get taken off into captivity, and it's almost ready to happen. It says, verse 2, For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. So notice, the king of Babylon is already surrounding the city of Jerusalem, ready to conquer it. It's less than a year away from the fall of Jerusalem, where they just totally ransack the whole entire place. They burn the temple, they burn the city, and they take everyone, including King Zedekiah, off with them. Verse 3, For Zedekiah the king of Judah had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy? And say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. The king's upset. He said, you're supposed to be telling us the message of God, which supposed to be some good news here. And all you're telling us is we're going to be taken off into captivity. And so he gets angry with, with Jeremiah and he puts him in prison. But he's still speaking the word of God. And the king says, so why you keep saying this stuff? Verse six, Jeremiah said, well, the word of the Lord came to me. That's why. But look at what the Lord said, verse 7. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of the redemption is yours to buy it. Then 
Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please, buy my field that's in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of the inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. So get this now, right? The city of Jerusalem is about to be taken over by Babylon and destroyed. And the people of God were going to be taken captive off to Babylon. But before it happened, Hanamel comes to Jeremiah saying, listen, buy my field. You're my relative. You can do this. And so he wants to sell him the field. Now, it doesn't get into all of his reasons, but obviously he saw it ain't going to be long until no one's going to be able or want to buy this, and you're able, so why don't you please buy it from me? But God had told Jeremiah beforehand that he was coming, so he knew this is of God, so he made the purchase. Why would he make the purchase? Number one, because God told him to. But number two, he had to put his money where his mouth is. He had been also saying, if you go back to chapter 29, God had him write letters to those already taken captive in Babylon to tell them, don't give up hope there. God has said, yes, you will be captives and slaves in Babylon for, for 70 years. But the 70 years are going to come to an end. And God says, I will bring you back to Jerusalem. There will again be fields purchased. There will be crops grown. You will live and prosper in this land again. And so Jeremiah had been telling the people this, but now he's also saying, we're going to be taken captive and the city destroyed. Did he really believe his own message that God was going to bring them back? Would he be willing to give up his own money to buy the land so that when the 70 years are over, it could be redeemed and become his own? And the answer was yes, he was willing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in the same kind of situation. Jesus Christ himself came and paid the price to redeem us. We belong to him. But we're, we haven't entered into our full inheritance yet. It's still coming. And just as Jeremiah had to have confidence in the prediction that God had given him that he would return and that they would be able to re-enter that land and experience God's blessing, we have to have the same kind of faith in the Word of God. We're not being encouraged that way by our culture. And if that's what Jeremiah had been looking at, he would have never made the purchase. But he was holding on to the Word of God. And that's what you and I have. The Word of God, the promise of God, which is, as the Bible says, yea and amen, it's as good as done. And uh, so he made the purchase. Now, when he did, I like this part. Notice verse 10. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch the son of Neriah, son of Maasai, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of, my, of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed, before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last for many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So he said, look, in the presence of all you witnesses, I've made the purchase and weighed out the price. You have now witnessed it. You witnesses put your seal upon the deed and let's take it. And they would also have this open one so that anyone could read what was in the sealed one. And they stored them in this clay pot till the day that it should come to be opened and redeemed. So the redemption process came in stages. The purchase was made. The witness is there. It was signed and sealed, awaiting its final redemption. And that I would suggest to you, between the will and testament of God... And the title deed to the inheritance of God, his possession, which the Bible says that's what we are. We are God's possession. The Bible says, don't you know that you're not your own? You were bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. 
That's how he redeemed us. He paid the price there on the cross 2,000 years ago. And we belong to him. And so part of the inheritance of God, part of God's will for his son, is that he would be able to redeem us, to possess us for his own, and no longer be separate as we are now, but there together with him, fully redeemed. Not in just in provision like now, but in reality in the day to come. That's what it says in the scriptures, right? Uh, uh, you're probably familiar with Ephesians chapter 1, which declares to us the many things that come with our salvation. And he would say this in verse 7, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And then again, down in verse 13, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. He says you were already purchased, but there's a time coming where he will actually take possession of that thing purchased, and we will enter into the fullness of that inheritance in a day to come, which is being pictured for us here in this book of Revelation chapter 5. And so we have the one, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who, because he became a man, he's the son of God. I kept hearing Malcolm's voice as I was thinking about this this week, right? Who never ceased to be what he always was, to become that which he never was. He did not stop being God when he became a man, but he had never been man before. And so the very person of God himself, the Son, took on human flesh so that he could be our nearest kinsman, related to us in human flesh. He was willing to come. Philippians 2 tells us it was his own decision. He was willingly laying aside the glories of heaven to stoop to become a servant here on earth for the purpose of going to the cross, willingly to pay the price for our sin. He was able to pay the price because he was one of us, but because he was also the sinless, perfect, spotless substitute who, because he was God himself, could qualify to cover not just for one of us, but for all of us. Praise God, he was willing to do that. He became our kinsman redeemer when he died on the cross, which makes him the worthy one in this passage. And so as we go through the, the text, we see a simple flow where it says there was a search for the worthy one. Here was the scroll. And when John looked at it, it says this strong angel wanted to know who then is worthy to take this scroll, this title deed to the inheritance of God, the expression of God's will that he has prescribed before the foundation of the world. Who is worthy to take that scroll, to break its seals and to open it? Who qualifies? And there was silence. The strong angel himself, Michael, Gabriel, the angels we have names for, none of them stepped forward to say, it's me. None of the 24 elders there with thrones around the throne said, I, I, I think I'm, I'm able. No, there was none. Nowhere in the physical universe, the spiritual world beyond this universe, it says, under the earth, in the realm of the dead, nowhere was found anyone who could approach that throne to take the scroll until, until as John wept because he realized the significance of what was happening. What is going to happen if no one can come claim the redemption? The end of the story is not like we thought it would be. Let's all just go home, right? No, he, he was weeping because no one was found worthy. But then the elder turned to him in verse 5 and said, You don't need to keep weeping, John. Listen, look, behold. See it right there. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's worthy to come take the scroll. And it's interesting. The terms given. I, I, it, it's just neat. What does the elder see? the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, back in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob was pronouncing 
the futures as he blessed his children. When he came to Judah, he declared that from him, a lion, the, 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 the line of kings and God's people would come through Judah. Predicted there, all the way back in Genesis. And he says, this lion of the tribe of Judah is the one who's here, who is worthy, is able to come take the scroll. He says he's also the root of David. God promised David, who was in the tribe of Judah, when in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David, realizing his indebtedness to God, said, God, I want to make, you're living in this tent. We come to worship you and visit with you in a tent, and I have this glorious house of gold, and uh, I want to make you a house. And God said, no, no, listen, I'm going to build your house, David. You don't have to do anything for me. There will always be someone to prosper on your throne. I will establish your throne. The line of David. And so Jesus himself is the root of David. Now, Psalm 110 would, 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 would change people's understanding. Revelation 22 says that, 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 that Jesus was the root and the offspring of David, right? We understand that there's a relation. He was a descendant of David. But he was greater than David. He was also the one from whom David came because he was God. And uh, here we have the one who qualifies. He said, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the rightful heir to the throne is here. He, is, he fits all the description of what God said his heir would be, going all the way back to the seed of the woman, to uh, 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 the tribe of Judah, of the line of Abraham and David uh, and the list goes on. And when, when John hears that this one is present to take the scroll, he says, He looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and even in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. He turned to see a lion, and he saw a lamb. Praise God, it's the same one. He rules with wisdom and power and love. I like how that psalm brings that out. Our God is an awesome God. Yes, we see in chapter 4 the lightnings and thunderings, the majesty, the justice, the holiness of God, but we also see the love and the grace of God. Why is it the Lamb? John the Baptist would see Jesus coming when John had been announcing the kingdom of God was upon them, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb was God's choice for redeeming His people from their sins. The, the substitute lamb had to be perfect, spotless, sinless, and Jesus was that one. And because he was willing to take the place as a lamb to sacrifice his own self, to shed his blood for your sin and for mine, he is now worthy to take the place not just as a lamb, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the rightful heir of all the universe. And it says... He had seven horns and seven eyes. I suspect the horns representing his power and authority and uh, the eyes being his all-knowing and, and all-wisdom to be able to reign. And seven being the number, they say, of perfection. Right? We see that repeated many times in areas of completeness or perfection. And, and I see no reason not to understand it that way. And says, he came and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. This is the one who was found worthy. And so the search was ended. What began as a futile search ended with the recognition. I, I found um, John MacArthur had this outline of the chapter. Selection is a little bit of a, uh, it's not the perfect word if you ask me, because it sounds like we're just saying, well, I'm going to choose this one. Well, there was no one, you couldn't just choose someone. The right one had to be identified, and he was. And so he was appointed and recognized as the one who truly was worthy. And so he came, and he took the scroll. And when he did, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they all fell down. It says, having a harp and bowls full of incense, has the idea of praise and prayer wrapped up in their worship of him. Their hearts were moved with gratitude 
and love and adoration and worship and praise. And they just, they couldn't hold it back. Through their prayers, through their songs, their hearts were just pouring out worship to the Lord himself. And the reasons are given, no longer because he's creator, but because you were slain. You of all people gave up your life for us, redeemed us by your own blood, not with gold and silver and a show of force. He laid down his life. And oh, what he's brought us into to make us kings and priests together with him to God, to reign with him. When he takes his place on the throne, we will be there with him together with him, administrating the universe because we are his inheritance. We will be there with him. He's redeemed us and we are his. But also we have a role as priests as we come with our offerings of praise and love and adoration. And as we go from his presence to the world to call them to come to him as well. We have a role to play now as well as then as kings and priests to God. And their song is a song of redemption. He's redeemed us. He's redeemed me. My dad likes to sing a song. Um, (laughs) And now the words are escaping me because I'm trying not to sing it. (laughs) They'll be singing up in heaven such as we have never known. That's as much as I can recall right now. But the story is of the angels in heaven, right? They proclaim the Lord's greatness, but you know, they can't sing the song of redemption like you and I will because they weren't redeemed. Hebrews makes it very clear. You know what? Jesus came to give his life for you and for me, but he never did it for the angels. He made us in his image and he chose to love us even when we were just as rebellious as Satan himself. But he's chosen to redeem us and we have the privilege of owning him as our own, of receiving his rightful place in our lives as Lord and King and Master and Savior all at the same time. And it says over and over here, worthy is the Lamb to receive all these things. And yet, I have to say as I look in my own heart, do I really give him that? Do I really see him as worthy of all that? Because I still want to be on the throne. I still go off and do my own. I still am not yielded to him as I rightfully should be. But you know, the day's coming where we will be fully entering into that inheritance. And that includes being eradicated from this nature that is still bound to us today. We're no longer left slaves to our sinful nature, but we haven't been eradicated from it yet. And so that's what gives us hope for this coming day. There's a day coming when we can enter into the fullness of what this, what's being pictured here. When they fall down with everything they've got to worship the Lamb who alone is worthy. To give Him the blessing and honor and glory and power that He deserves. And so my heart says, like they do in verse 14, Amen. So be it, Lord. Yes, that's the cry of my heart too. But we're not there yet. So, Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, know that the day in which we live in all this brokenness is not what we're left with. There's a day coming so much brighter. Free from sin, free from sorrows. The tears will be wiped away. We will be in his presence. He will crack those seals and bring us into the inheritance. But, oh, what is waiting in the pages to come. You know, when the Israelites came into their possessed inheritance, there were those who refused to vacate the premises, right? There were battles to take place to those who would resist the will and the authority of God. And what we see in the pages of this book is that even though the Lamb comes to take the scroll, there's yet another process. There, the kingdom of darkness led by Satan is still trying to keep the Lord Jesus from receiving his full inheritance. And there will be battles to come. There will be lives lost who don't yield themselves up willingly to receive him as their Lord and Savior and King. 
You know, we know a lot, of, a lot of people that will be left in that throng. People that we know of who, who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Maybe there's some in this room. You've heard about Jesus either recently or all your life. You know that he died on the cross. You've heard that he died to pay for sin, to pay the penalty we deserve. But have you received him as your Savior? You know, if you haven't, you're not going to be a part of this rejoicing group of people entering into this inheritance. You'll be lost. And what's described in the pages to come is nothing compared to what the end of the book describes, where death and hell and all those who've rejected Jesus Christ are thrown in to the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. By then it'll be too late. The fact that we are here today breathing means it's not too late for us. It's not too late for you if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would be so remiss to not give you that opportunity today. If you don't understand and know for sure that your sin is forgiven, would you talk to someone today before you walk out those doors? We're not guaranteed to finish today, much less have tomorrow. But I tell you this, he is coming back. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I pray that it's soon, but not too late for each and every one of you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the glimpse into the heavenlies today. Thank you for the reminder of who you are and who you desire to be in our lives today as much as you desire to be able to bring us into your presence to enter into the fullness of who you are in the day to come. Lord, thank you for this glimpse. May you indeed fill our hearts with awe and wonder and adoration to give us the faith and hope to hang on and trust you in your word and through all of the brokenness of our world today. But we thank you that there is and there was one found worthy to break those seals, to open the scroll, and to reign forever and ever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being that one for us. We pray in your own name.